Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Every single day, we encounter wildlife, birds, insects, various mammals, and of course, even city dwellers are surrounded by plants. Humans have transformed so much of the natural world through our cities, towns, neighborhoods, industry, agriculture, and infrastructure that how we live, work, and shape our landscapes is a vital part of conservation. Urban ecology is the focus of this year's annual Arrington Lecture at Iowa State University. Dr. Amanda Rodewald will present a bird's-eye view, understanding predator-prey interactions in the city on October 26th at 7 p.m. in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union at Iowa State University. She is the Garvin Professor and Senior Director of the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at Cornell University. And she is with me now. Hello, Amanda. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I want to start with this idea of urban ecology, um, because it's a it's a field of study that has developed a lot in recent decades. How do you describe it? Yeah, so I mean, you're right. Urban ecology is a relatively new field. Really, the last 20 years or so, we've been focusing on it. And really, it's intended to understand how species interact within urban areas, right, and how we interact with the environment. You know, right now we know that most of the population um, of the world, of human populations, are living in urban areas. So it's critical that we better understand what's happening all around us. Well, and I think that there was this assumption for a while that when we built a city, we pushed the wildlife out. But that's just not the reality. No, not at all. And so, yeah, there are so many wildlife that are within cities that actually thrive. And there are other ones that kind of tolerate us. <laughs> you know, they can they can get along in spite of us. And some others, of course, that, that, avoid, that avoid urban areas. But one of the really cool things that we're seeing is over time, you know, we're seeing more species kind of come back into urban areas as well. And that's probably most um, dramatic for um, some raptors that we're finding in urban areas again, like peregrine falcon, you know, or Cooper's hawk that people might have with in their feeders, and other mammals, right, like coyotes. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting and dynamic field. Well, and some of that has been partially by design. I mean, bringing peregrine falcons back was something that the people worked really hard to do. And I remember releases of peregrine falcons on the tops of the highest buildings in Iowa, which are not nearly as high as a lot of buildings <laughs> elsewhere. Part of that was purposeful, but part of that is just the way things have happened. Right. And I think there is this sort of sense that people have that wildlife, as you said, there's something that is not compatible with human activity. And certainly urban areas, you know, cities are one of the most intensive ways that we use land on this planet. But wildlife have been living alongside people for, you know, forever, right? And so, I mean, that's not to say that we're not negatively impacting a lot of species with certain activities. But 
as a group, they do have the potential to really find ways to eke out their living right alongside of us. Well, and we'll talk more about this in a little while. But of course, I I look at the landscape in Iowa, and we are not known for big cities. Um, Obviously, we do live in cities. And that does impact the, the wildlife that share our landscape. But Iowa is often quoted as being the most transformed landscape of any state in the nation because of agriculture. Our landscape is radically transformed. And that's not part of urban ecology, but that is very much a part of how we interact with wildlife. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of, you know, urban ecology is one of the areas I focus on, but certainly any kind of human activity. And these, what we call a big focus now are trying to understand how human-dominated landscapes, right, and and that includes agricultural working landscapes, are really affecting ecological processes, wildlife included, and how we can better manage them, not only for the health of other species in those ecosystems, but also for our own health. At the end of the day, if we look at the choices we make with management and how we interact with the environment, very often it's the same activities or the same actions that we need to do to protect the environment also are what we need to do to protect human health and well-being. I mean, you could look at like issues about water pollution in Iowa, big concern, of course, for everybody. Well, a lot of the same actions that we would take to improve water quality, to ensure that we have good groundwater supplies, you know, those are the same steps that we need to take to protect wildlife in many of those places as well. One of the things that you have focused on in some of your work, you do a great deal of work, is uh, shade-grown coffee and how altering the way that coffee is grown can benefit the farmers, wildlife, and the environment, and even produce a better product. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about how, how this works. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Talking about coffee is one of my favorite things, too. Yeah, so coffee and shade-grown coffee is a really wonderful example of, you know, what we can think of as a win-win-win. It's a win for the environment, a win for um, the human communities, and a win on the economic side and for the consumers as well. Well, I guess I'll back up for a second, right? Traditionally, coffee was grown under a canopy of trees. It was a forest understory plant, so like a shrub, a small, a smaller tree shrub. And so as um, coffee cultivation was intensified over time, you know, people removed the overstory and grew it much like corn is grown, right, as a monoculture um, in the sun. And so that had the effect of improving yields for certain varieties of coffee. So coffee, um, the coffee that's grown in the sun is most often Robusta, um, which some people have described as, you know, could be like your gas station coffee, you know, quality. And so it improved yields, but it came at the cost um, of a lot of other species in the environment, of also like a lot of monocultures requiring many more inputs in terms of nutrients to be added, pesticides um, to be sprayed. And that, of course, affected the health and well-being of the farmers who are in those areas as well. And because Robusta is grown, you know, in 
expulsion. It, it grows really quickly um, at low and um, oftentimes hot environments. The quality of the bean isn't as good, you know, at least as most people would describe um, you know, coffee quality. And so it comes at a lower price. So when we add trees to coffee plantations, we're doing a few things. You know, one is we're including habitat for wildlife. And it's not just birds, um, but it's other species as well. And in terms of birds, it's amazing how abundant the species are um, and the flocks of birds that will be moving through these coffee plantations. Um, and those include a lot of our migratory birds as well that spend the winter in these coffee farms. So including shade trees supports a lot of other species, but it also does things um, that really provide broader ecosystem services. So having trees in these mountainous areas and on the steep slopes where coffee is often cultivated, that's helping to prevent landslides. When we do that, we're not only affecting you know, the direct um, impact the landslides are having on people and, and their property and transportation, but they're also, that's protecting um, the soil. Right, it prevents that from running off. And um, by having trees um, on the farm, it also is providing more nutrients, especially because many of the trees they're including are actually nitrogen fix fixers. Um, so those are helping to improve the quality of the soil. Um, by having um, more trees and different kinds of crops, that also provides an alternate income stream for a lot of farmers and their families, because coffee is a really difficult crop to grow and to make a living. The, fright, the price fluctuates dramatically um, over the years. And in two, having um, the coffee tends to do better when you have shade trees because birds themselves actually provide a service in the form of pest control. So they've done studies where they show that you know, the birds, which many of which are insect eating, actually control the species that harm coffee plants. So when you have birds, you actually get better yields. So those are all um, benefits that are happening really on the, the um, you know, Central and South America and Africa and where we're growing the coffee. But in terms of a consumer who's buying the cup, we're also benefiting because we're getting a higher quality cup. We also know that we're, you know, taking a small step Right, to, making a choice that yeah, makes a difference. Absolutely, yeah. So it's a great, it's a great system to think about. But you know, those kind of what we call co-benefits, you know, they're not exclusive to coffee. You know, we can we find them. You know, there are just many, many examples around. Well, it makes me that. think about the um, the prairie strip research done by Lisa Schulte Moore at Iowa State University, along with the the rest of her team, and all of the many benefits that that brings to the ecosystem, to the farmer, to all of us. So I'm sure I we need to do a whole show of examples uh, of this kind of work. Yeah. Um, right. But I'm also struck by the interdisciplinary work that has to go into finding that path forward. I mean, this is not just done by ecologists, not just done by agronomists. You have to bring a lot of different disciplines together. 
Oh, absolutely. Right. We work with economists, for example, as well to really find out, okay, if we know that the farmer needs to make a living, you know, we know that there are, you know, economics that play out along the supply chain. How, what is the, what is the right mix of shade to have on a farm to really optimize the yields we're getting, the um, quality of the coffee, but also the benefits that we're, you know, accruing more broadly in the environment. Yeah, so absolutely. And in urban systems too, it's the same thing. It's city planners, architects, um, you know, there's all sorts of of issues. And also too with the, the environmental justice, right, that's components that are part of really any decisions we're making about the environment as well. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking to Dr. Amanda Rodewald. She's presenting A Bird's Eye View, Understanding Predator-Prey Interactions in the City. This is the annual Arrington Lecture at Iowa State University, coming up on October 26th at 7 p.m. in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union. And we will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, I am talking with Dr. Amanda Rodewald. She is the Garvin Professor and Senior Director of the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at Cornell University. She is coming to Iowa. She is going to be the speaker at this year's annual Arrington Lecture at Iowa State University. She'll be presenting A Bird's Eye View, Understanding Predator-Prey Interactions in the City on October 26th at 7 p.m. in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union at Iowa State University, and that is free and open to the public. And we've been talking about urban ecology. We've been talking about uh, movement to make different kinds of agriculture more sustainable for both the farmers, for the local ecosystem, for the wildlife passing through. And I want to talk a little bit about we're in we're in this this difficult period in so many ways. I mean, we we talk a lot about climate change. We talk a lot about the plights of of different species. And I, I know that many scientists believe that we are in the midst of the sixth great extinction, a modern man made period of extinction. How how do you see this moment that we're living in? Oh, well, that's, that's a great question. So it's, it's true, right, that in many ways, when we look around the world, it, it can seem a little bleak, right? On the climate front, environment, biodiversity, social, you name it. I actually have a lot of optimism right now. And so my optimism derives not from feeling like we're going to do a better job of convincing everyone to care about the same exact um, 
problems or how to fix them. You know, I think right now we're dealing with so many problems. It's impossible to care and act on every single one, right? I mean, we just would all be exhausted um, and stressed out entirely. But what we're seeing now is a convergence of the kinds of decisions and the choices that we need to be making um, as a global community and also as Americans. We, if you care about climate change, right, if you care about sustainable and productive agricultural systems, if you care about wildlife, um, if we care about providing, you know, safe and um, easy access to nature, for example, there are actions that really will deliver for each of those issues, right? If we think about, um, you know, I'll be talking about cities. So within cities, if we use um, the heat, you know, all the heat we're getting, right? These, you know, high temperatures causing massive issues with um, human health, um, you know, and disrupting economies as well. If we plant more vegetation, more shade trees, for example, in our communities, that not only is actually delivering benefits um, to us, you know, as residents of those areas, it also is helping to, you know, mediate to some extent some of the climate change that we're seeing. It's helping to provide habitat to species. You know, if we think about birds that are migrating um, every year in the spring and the fall, they're moving through urban areas often. That's providing habitat to them. You know, those trees are helping to, and the vegetation help to filter, you know, se um, sediments and chemicals out of the water that keep our water cleaner. You know, you could go on and on with those kind of benefits. So why I'm at this moment, despite the, you know, the admittedly dismal, you know, view when you look at the problems, I am encouraged by these co-benefits and the natural way the solutions are aligning. And so that makes me hopeful. That will motivate people because I don't have to convince people to care about birds to see certain choices made. You can make compelling arguments for why we need to act in certain ways, even if we're only concerned about human health, or even if we're concerned about, you know, security and economics. Um, so that's so that's how I view this moment. Although it, it seems like caring about birds shouldn't be a hard sell. <laughs> um, but, right. you know, one of the things that I find so fascinating to think about with birds is because so many species are migratory, they are this essential way that we are connected globally and that global conservation efforts are so vital because if, if we here in Iowa do something to support habitat, but wherever the birds who come through here or nest here are going, that there isn't habitat, then we can't we can't save a species on our own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we call that in in the fields um, in which I work, you know, full annual cycle conservation. You know, we can think about birds as having. If you look over the course of the year, they have their breeding period. You know, and for the species that, of course, from our perspective, you know, the the North American species are breeding here. They have their migratory periods um, in the spring and the fall, where they will then move to for for at least the migratory species to other places, whether it's the southern U.S. or many species move to the neotropics, and that's where they overwinter. 
Um, and so in each of these stages of the annual cycle, birds are encountering threats, right? They're on the breeding season, you know, they're losing their habitat, you know, either losing it outright or it's being degraded to the extent that they can't survive, they can't raise young, or maybe they can't get the fat supplies they need to successfully migrate during migration. Um, for some species, like shorebirds in particular, they congregate at an in enormous um, numbers at certain small stopover sites. And as we lose those areas, especially along coastal areas or, you know, along rivers, um, large river systems, you know, that's going to prevent them from resting and refueling in order to successfully complete migration. And then, of course, on the non-breeding grounds in the winter, you know, there they need to, you know, the same thing as always. They need to survive, you know, in order and build up those fat reserves again to make it back up north to breed, you know, and so that's just even from the habitat front. We also have issues with, you know, the kind of obstacles that we're building, you know, in the environment also pose another threat to migratory birds, of course. Right. Well, when you say that, the uh, just a terrible story from earlier this month comes to mind when migratory birds, at least a thousand migratory birds hit the windows of McCormick Place Lakeside Center in Chicago and died. They were on their way to Peru or I don't, I don't know if they were <laughs> where right. they all were going. But I mean, an incident like that drives home how big an impact we have. And I know that there were some weather elements to that, but it's it's I, I just brought us back to pessimism. I mean, that's really scary. Right. But, you know, that is so it so it is tragic, right? And that's being played out really across the country, across the world. We know millions of birds each year, you know, are killed um, within cities, you know, and, and um, striking buildings. But the good thing is, is that we actually, that's one of the most tractable um, issues that we can address in bird conservation because we can reduce enormously the risk of collision by turning lights out in cities and buildings, right? And so that has been shown um, to be really effective at reducing those collisions at night. So what's happening is a lot of these birds are migrating at night, um, like a lot of the wood warblers that were killed in this most recent event in Chicago. Um, and as they're moving at night, they become the lights of the city that they're seeing can attract them to urban areas, for one, but they can also disorient the birds, particularly if there's fog or cloudy conditions. And then they start kind of circling around, they, um, you know, get sort of turned around and they collide with buildings. Um, so that's the sort of nighttime migration. And we at the Cornell Lab have um, a program um, called BirdCast that we run with partners at Colorado State and at University of Massachusetts as well, who um, what we do is we actually use NEXRAD weather radar in order to make predictions about the number of birds that are migrating at a night. And so we can make forecasts at three-day intervals and send out alerts to individuals and to building managers and cities in order to turn out their lights. Um, and so that's, you know, one way that we can actually make a difference there. And two, we were talking earlier about co-benefits, 
right? And of course, turning out lights is going to have a lot of benefits for saving energy, right, and costs of running buildings. So that's a plus. Another thing I'll just mention about collisions is that just at an individual scale, there are birds during the day that we've probably all experienced, right? You're in your house, you hear a whack on the window and darn, you know, there's a bird flew into it. Um, and that's because they see the reflection of vegetation in the window. We can put decals on windows and have other kinds of coatings in order to reduce the risk of collisions. So like American Bird Conservancy has some great resources available. Probably if you just Google, you know, bird window collision, you know, and, and American Bird Conservancy, those will pop up, you know, a lot of really good recommendations. So we can do something about those issues. You mentioned earlier that you don't necessarily um, need to specifically care about birds to take action that can benefit birds. But um, I, I, I feel strongly that, you know, we the more we care, the more we love our environment, the stronger connection we have, the more likely we are to take personal action. And I am curious about your story. Where did this begin for you? Yeah, well, I, I'm actually a, a city girl. I grew up in Schenectady, New York. So my exposure, at least on a day-to-day -day basis to nature, was in the alleyways, you know, and just all the weedy vegetation out there and in along the streets, you know, the trees, climbing in the trees. Um, and then my parents would bring me out to more, you know, parks and natural areas on the weekends. And I just loved being outside. Um, I was really curious about the world around me and about animals. Um, probably like a lot of people, I didn't really know you could focus on ecology or conservation for a discipline. Um, and it wasn't until I um, met some people, um, I guess when I was like 18 or 19, that I first learned about like jobs in forestry and wildlife, you know, kind of natural resource jobs. And so that just was super exciting for me. And that's when I first started moving in this area and went out to University of Montana to pursue my bachelor's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was great. And like a lot of people, you go out, you know, from, from the city in the east to start seeing wild landscapes, which I'd never seen before. We didn't have enough money to travel growing up, you know. So it, it just opened my eyes to the world um, around me. And it's, you know, it's been great sense. I mean, there's, it's so interesting um, intellectually, um, but it's deeply meaningful, you know, to feel like, you know, we're working to try to better understand the world in order to better support ecosystems, other species, and human health and well-being. And that's really the key, right, well, what motivates me. It's like finding those creative solutions and those approaches that support you know, everyone, you know, so all boats rise, so to say. Well, it, it's interesting to think about how, not just how our connection to nature has changed, but how the pathway to that connection has changed. I talked to a, a friend about how um, in the classes that he's taught in ecology over the years, there has been a shift in, you know, it used to be the students who went hunting and fishing and spent time outdoors with their families, that that was the, their pathway. And he said that in recent years, it's often been kids who love documentaries and have watched and learned through television as opposed to actually touching and feeling nature. 
Yeah, it has. It has really shifted. Um, and I think that's where one of the things that we're you see a lot of attention being placed on right now is how do we provide that closer access to nature to to kids who are growing up in cities because that's really important not only to foster that connection that appreciation but also just for physical and mental health we know right nature is is really positive that way um, I will say that shift too, just within the conservation community, the um, the loss of interest in hunting and fishing, these much more traditional ways of engaging with nature, does have some consequences though when it comes to our ability to really manage wildlife, um, fish and wildlife on the ground. State agencies like um, Iowa Department of Natural Resources, you know, they're funded through um, the taxes and sales um, associated with licenses and and right. um, equipment, so that's and we don't we don't have a we don't pay to go into our state parks like many other states. They collect revenue that way, but yeah. we don't buy a pass to state parks here. That's a a revenue stream right. that the state of Iowa has chosen not to pursue. Right, and that's. I mean, and, you know, those kind of issues, it's like there's access is a good part of that, you know. Um, well, that's, I'll just mention, too, there is a um, a new um, bill that's that's in Congress right now called Recovering America's Wildlife Act that is um, a new way to support all of our state fish and wildlife agencies or natural resource agencies. You know, every state is a different name. Um, and so RAWA, as, as it's called, um, it has been so close to coming up to a vote, you know, in the last couple cycles. But it's there again. And that would provide um, over around $1.4 billion to state wildlife agencies and tribal nations to actually manage for fish and wildlife. And so this is another way that we can try to make up for the loss of some of those hunting and fishing revenues. So it's really important. Yeah, and so from a bird perspective, like Iowa, um, on, their, on the Iowa Wildlife Action Plan, every state is required to have one of these plans. There are 130 um, species of birds that are listed as species of greatest conservation need. And RAWA would actually deliver, it's estimated to, um, if it passes, would bring $13 million of funding to Iowa, um, to their Department of Natural Resources to implement that. So it could be, yeah, it could be a real win-win um, there. Well, and birding is such a passion for so many people. It's a big business. It is. Yeah, that's I mean it's an enormous economic engine. Um and it's, you know, part of the larger suite of outdoor recreation um that fuels a lot of economies, especially rural economies. Um I had seen in um Department of Natural Resources had pulled together some statistics about actually outdoor recreation revenue in Iowa. And this was back in 2015, so certainly it's increased a lot since then. But then it was generating over $6 billion of consumer spending every year. Um, and so that's, I mean, that is meaningful, right? Those are yeah. jobs, you know, people's wages, salaries, all sorts money, of benefits. Money talks. <laughs> We're going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with Dr. Amanda Rodewald. She is 
the Garvin Professor and Senior Director of the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at Cornell University. She'll be giving the annual Arrington Lecture at Iowa State University coming up on October 26th. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me right now is Dr. Amanda Rodewald. She is the Garvin Professor and Senior Director of the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at Cornell University. And she is coming to Iowa. She will be presenting the annual Arrington Lecture at Iowa State University coming up on October 26th in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union. Her presentation is called A Bird Bird's Eye View, Understanding Predator-Prey Interactions in the City. And Amanda, I want to talk about that. We we (laughs) haven't gotten to that at all. Um, We've talked a lot about urban ecology and the fact that in our cities and towns, we are living with wildlife. And science has done so much, especially in the last 20 years, to really start to understand those interactions and how humans affect the wildlife, etc. So predator-prey relationships... In the city, that's not something that we used to think at all about. I think. Right. Tell me why this interests you. Yeah, so I started. Um, I started focusing on on urban systems when I had my first faculty job at Ohio State University, and so I was there living in Columbus and thinking, well, you know, what that's that's a great opportunity. Here's this system right here next to me, um, and one of the things that was really obvious was that you get pretty predictable changes in bird communities in cities. We start seeing some declines in a lot of our neotropical migratory birds. Those tend to be more insect-eating birds. They lay smaller clutches or numbers of eggs in their nests every year. You know, they're, they're more vulnerable generally than a lot of the resident species um, that we see like, um, you know, northern cardinal or downy woodpecker or chickadees, you know, that we see in urban areas that tend to increase. So I was really curious about why we were seeing these differences in the bird communities. And one of the the first explanations that comes to mind, I think, for a lot of people is that, well, maybe predation is higher. These birds are getting eaten, you know, or their nests are getting eaten. And one of the reasons why this seems like an obvious, um, you know, cause or at least a major contributor to these changes we see in the bird communities is that when we look around, right, in cities, we're seeing raccoons and skunks and cats running around, you know, there are crows, there are, you know, all of these species that we know are predators of bird nests. So it makes sense to think, well, geez, you got more predators? Well, I bet they're eating down the birds. And so I started to really um, investigate that much more closely. And what was cool was that a lot of the ways that predators and um, bird communities sort of interact that we see in more natural or you know rural areas, even agricultural areas, um, aren't quite happening in the same way within the cities. So that's how I really got started um, down that track. 
Tell me about predatory birds in cities, because we, we talked earlier about, you know, how we're seeing species like peregrine falcons coming back to, to large cities. And I, <laughs> I, I know that people get upset when the Cooper's hawk is at their bird feeder and feeding on the birds, the other birds, the songbirds that are at that feeder. Um, but it... And I don't, I don't know if this is an awareness thing or not, but it does feel like we, we see more raptors now than we did 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, there are uh, um, quite a number of raptors that are really thriving within urban areas. So you mentioned, you know, with uh, uh, Cooper's hawk, I think, you know, at feeders, right? That's a really common um, bird that now has become very abundant within our cities. Um, and it, it, is, um, you know, a lot of observations and the program that people might participate in, Feeder Watch has published some studies, right, with um, all the input, you know, and data provided by by bird watchers or then bird feeders. Um, yeah, bird feeding individuals, <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> you know, about how their numbers are going up um, at bird feeders within cities. And it probably is not only an ability to better tolerate human disturbance, but of course, you have this, you know, great food resource that's there. And another one, too, that's increasing a lot are, are um, like barred owl. You know, a lot of people might be hearing barred owls and they're, you know, in the woodlots um, and in the parks and the cities. So, yeah, they're great. I mean, that's one of the great success stories that we're seeing um, with those urban raptors. You have studied how the plant life that surrounds these birds impacts their health, impacts their even their interactions. And tell me more about that, because the the so much of the plant life that we have in our urban areas is not native. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so those non-native plants can have um, a number of impacts, right? So one way we know that I guess I'm not really going to be talking about is that non-native plants don't support as many insects, right, for for birds and for other wildlife that a native plant would. Um, and an, another one that does kind of factor in a little bit more to some of the work I'm doing is that they provide fruits oftentimes, really abundant fruits, but oftentimes of lower quality. So um, so the, what I've, the invasive and exotic plant that most of my work has focused on is honeysuckle, Amir honeysuckle. And so that was introduced from um, Asia. It's really taken off in a lot of um, a lot of the U eastern U.S. and in the Midwest, you know, where you can see it as the dominant shrub in a lot of places. Um, and so what that does is it's creating a lot of habitat, seemingly, for understory nesting birds, but it's affecting the way in which um, they're being exposed to predators. So if you've gone out, and I'm not actually, I have never been in Ames, where I will be, so it will be my first time seeing, so I don't actually know if there's a lot of honeysuckle in in, in the cities there. But honey, Oh, yes. There, there is. is. All over Iowa. Okay. Yeah. All right. So and, and, and invading our prairies and our woodland areas, yeah. it is a constant struggle. All right. Yeah. So then, so probably people are familiar with early spring, uh, nothing's really leafed out. You know, it looks still like winter, except 
Oh, you see the green in the understory from honeysuckle. That's the first thing to leaf out. And so one of the really interesting things we find in cities is that honeysuckle leafs out early. And that just provides the signal to a lot of the understory nesting birds there that, hey, it's time to go. Let's nest. And they start nesting in a really concentrated way in that layer of the forest, right, just Mm. in honeysuckle shrubs. And so we can imagine if you're a predator that's moving through a system, right, moving through the forest and you're either, you know, you're looking for bird nests, maybe even haphazardly or opportunistically, um, if all the nests or most of the nests are located in this one kind of shrub, you know, and the similar height, it's going to be way easier to find nests than if you're having to look, you know, up and down the whole forest, you know, higher in trees and different kinds of locations. And so what we see is that early in the season, birds that nest in honeysuckle are much more likely to have those nests depredated than birds that would nest in native plants. And we see that then birds that have their first nest attempt in honeysuckle actually um, have a penalty that persists throughout the whole season, even if they re-nest, they end up fledging about a um, 20% fewer young. So that's one of the ways that we're seeing this play out in urban areas. But it's really interesting, again, who would think that a shrub, an invasive shrub, really can affect the way um, predators are impacting birds in that system. Well, especially because it's an invasive shrub that provides a food source for birds. Right. But not as good a food source <laughs> as, other, as other native species, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the interesting things we found is that, so for a lot of birds, like color is a is called um, like an honest signal of quality, right? You can, you know, females can use the color of a male. If he's brighter, you know, oh, he has access to good food. He's in good health. Um, and a lot of that brightness can come from the diet, sort of the you are what you eat. Um, you know, motto. And so fruits do often have a lot of carotenoids or these pigments that can help with the bright color. So with northern cardinals, which is one of the species I study, their plumage is brighter when they have more access to these carotenoids. Well, an interesting thing in urban areas is that when you have, you can imagine you have some birds that are eating lots of honeysuckle fruits. Now they're getting lots of the pigment, But honeysuckle fruits are pretty lousy. They have lower fat content. So their body condition isn't so hot, you know, if they're eating a lot of fruits generally and those kind of, um, you know, those kind of diets. Um, Other birds may be eating a lot of bird seed that nutritionally has a lot more to offer but doesn't have as much of those pigments. And so what we find in, in Columbus, at least, is that in urban areas, color is not really a good signal anymore of the body condition of male cardinals. So it's really made it, you know, where females can't use that anymore. It's not a reliable signal of male quality. And we don't know, but the hypothesis is that it's that decoupling, right, where you have a low-quality fruit that gives you the pigments versus a high-quality food that doesn't give you the pigments, sort of, you know, disrupts that relationship. Well, you are making me feel even better about the time I spent last weekend 
killing honeysuckle yeah. on, on my own property. But I, I know that um, we talked earlier this hour about how there are there are some concrete steps that each one of us can take that do make a difference. I mean, obviously, cities and municipalities and businesses have these responsibilities, too. But before we run out of time, I would love to just ask you, what do you what is your message for individuals? What do you think each one of us can do to really make a difference when it comes to conservation and birds? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, well, one thing I think So there are different kinds of actions. One thing not to overlook is just kind of voting decisions, to be honest, you know, making sure that you're actually, you know, as an individual supporting those candidates, voicing support for, you know, bills in Congress that are going to support a healthy environment and will support conservation. That's one way, you know, supporting conservation organizations another way. So, but those aside, just on a day-to-day basis, um, some simple things um, that like keeping your cats indoors. I know, I mean, I have a cat who I tell you, she would be the ha- would be the happiest thing in the world if she could be outside. She would love that. But you know, keep her inside not only to protect other species, as we know that cats kill billions of birds every year, but we also, it's better for the health of the cat and then better for the, he- the health of the family who's living with the cat. You know, you, um, you don't have as much toxoplasmosis and things. Um, planting native plants, that's another one, right? So having more natural areas in your yard, in your home, um, you know, around your home garden in order to support, um, you know, insects, and birds, um, you know, and and other species, of course. That also reduces the amount of sort of chemical inputs or energy inputs associated with maintaining the yard. Um, We talked about collisions earlier. So having decals or other coverings in your windows to help reduce um, collisions that birds are having. So those are some examples of what people can do just on a day-to-day basis. Um, but like we've, we've you know, touched on previously, I think there are lots of small choices that we can make, even in support of other issues that we care about, that also are going to have these sort of spillover benefits for birds as well. Like buying shade-grown coffee. Oh, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> definitely do that. <laughs> um, we were talking earlier about, you know, there's, there's so much bad news that we hear about the environment, about different species, about our planet right now. And I think about the generation that is growing up right now, this generation that that some of them, I would say, feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders, like, oh, great. You know, these older generations have made all of these mistakes and they've left it up to us to save the planet. That's really hard. That's really, really hard. It's really depressing. And sometimes I worry that kids are growing up with almost this negative feeling about conservation and the environment because it feels hopeless. Do you have any thoughts about that, about empowering this generation? Yeah, I think one of um, one of the most empowering um, sort of elements, I think, that we have now is that we have 
we're, conservation and the kind of decisions that we can make, the kind of information we have to guide conservation decisions has been completely transformed with citizen science or participatory science programs. So like eBird is, you know, one of the ones that, you know, is now the biggest, you know, fastest accumulating biodiversity project on the planet right now. And, and that as individuals participate in these kinds of programs, so in the case of eBird, submitting observations you know, to the eBird platform, that information is being used to inform um, you know, conservation policies. It can be used to help alert us to declines, to really show us where the problems are, when we need to act, and what we need to do to really make a difference. Um, you know, eBird is being used by government agencies, by NGOs, you know, by land trusts, you know, by all sorts of groups to really improve the kind of decisions that are being made. So I guess that's one thing just with empowering that we can all, by contributing to these participatory science programs really help provide the information that managers and decision makers you know, and other practitioners need to make the kinds of decisions that are going to support you know, human health and well-being and um, you know, safe and healthy environments as well. Amanda, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Dr. Amanda Rodewald is the Garvin Professor and Senior Director of the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at Cornell University. She is coming to Iowa. She'll be giving the annual Arrington Lecture at Iowa State University coming up on October 26th at 7 p.m. in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union. It is free and open to the public, and her presentation is called A Bird's Eye View, Understanding Predator-Prey Interactions in the City. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Samantha McIntosh, and Danny Gear. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa. <laughs> <laughs>